what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host. For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There's a strong link between sports and medicine. If you're not at the top of your medical game, you can't play well, or you just can't play. Welcome to Bruce the Sports Doc with medical expert Dr. Bruce Grossinger. This program looks at advances and breakthroughs in medicine and how it relates to sports. Plus, you'll receive preventative tips and analysis of sports injuries this week. Now, here's Bruce the Sports Doc. I want to welcome everybody to the newest edition of Bruce the Sports Doc. I'm Dr. Bruce Grossiger, and the weather here in Philadelphia is quite poor. We have a great show for you. We have Dr. Cynthia Beer of Wayne State University, and we also have Helen Struckman, the manual therapist and guru here in Philadelphia. We're really excited to welcome Dr. Joseph Fernandez, who is the uh, sports medicine director for Rutgers University, and we'll be talking to him later in the show. To begin the show... Really pleased to have Mr. Ray Ellis, who's the director of Voice America Sports. Good afternoon, Ray. Hey, Doc. How are you today? I'm doing well. I think uh, we have a lot of rain here, and I think we had a little short in the uh, microphone, but I think we're doing well. How are things out in the uh, Valley of the Sun? Well, that's the thing about it. That they call it paradise. There's one area here called Paradise Valley, and of course, it's it's paradise every day. But I think even a rainy day is, you know, one to certainly appreciate. Uh, I just like to take the time out to tell your listeners, you know, that I certainly uh, today am, am feeling uh, humbled uh, as I just think about one of my dear friends um, who had a heart attack, um, Ron Springs, who had uh, complications with diabetes, uh, had a heart attack, but he also had had a kidney transplant. Um, uh, courtesy of a former teammate of his with the Dallas Cowboys, and that was Everson Walls. And Everson wrote a book called A Gift for Ron, um, and that book is out on the stands. But certainly, I uh, just want to pay homage to my friend uh, Ron Springs and uh, and do whatever I can to kind of update you on what's happening in our world of uh, the National Football League. Yeah, I have a very fond memory of Ron Springs. I just remember his thighs. I just remember how muscular he was. I remember the acceleration of when he went through the hole. I also <laughs> right. remember the uh, the beautiful uh, you know the the beautiful gift of uh, Everson Walls, like you noted, with respect to his kidneys. And uh, he he just he just died too young, and I'm I'm really glad that we have a chance to pay homage to Ron today. Uh, and it's in the sad in that sad day. Uh, with respect to the the CBA, there are two really important bits of news that just came out. As you know, the, uh, the 8th District Court basically said the lockout could stay until the full appeal. I don't think that's a great surprise. And secondly, the mediation period between the NFL and its locked-out players ended earlier today as well. 
So we wanted to talk about some of the important issues of the stalemate in the CBA. Uh, we, you and I have spoke about this you know, privately several times. And I know the listeners are going to appreciate your insight because you're so close to the NFL alumni. Could you um, tell us how, the, how you feel the lockout's going to affect the players? Well, you know, one thing about um, the players um, that are currently playing today as opposed to the retired players, um, I, I, I think it's important uh, that people know that, again, these are professional athletes. And, and so there is a, a way that they go about their business that has allowed them to achieve uh, that plateau uh, as a professional. Uh, it, it's those who could not do that and were not willing to do that uh, that could not make it to that level. So certainly uh, what it takes, the commitment it takes to be a professional athlete, uh, those players in terms of their conditioning and 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 the um, what it takes in terms of the commitment to put in the time uh, of study that's necessary to compete on the football field it's not going to be compromised it's not like if these players did not have the ability to go to a a gym or a workout facility that the team had available for them that they would not be able to work out see there are many players uh it's just more recently that the teams require players to come to their facilities on a more regular base. Prior to that, players worked out in their, most of the players in the offseason would go to their hometowns or they would go back to the places, their colleges and universities, and they would still come back and show up in shape and ready to play. Uh, they may be bigger, stronger, and faster, but they got themselves in the shape that they were bigger, stronger, and faster. Now, how they can be affected, and probably some of them are affected, is in their financial preparation. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that young men, regardless of their football players or not, uh, many times they like to enjoy uh, the benefits that life has to offer them. And in a very young age, we don't have the financial discipline. And some of them lack the financial literacy that it takes to put a plan in place to sustain it over a period of time. And so with that being said and done, there could be some financial difficulties and hardship that these players will face, but they'll be temporary, and certainly they will recover from that. The biggest challenge they're going to have is some of them are not aware that the NFL can be very mean to players after strikes and or after lockouts. And, and that is the consequences that some of them may suffer that were on rosters last year. And it may have nothing to do with their abilities, just the fact they were participants. Uh, some players will be sacrificed and their careers may end uh, after this lockout is ended and they go into training camp. So, I, so what you're saying really is, and I recall the last lockout in baseball, essentially the last strike, if people are very vocal and very active against the NFL, and if they are, if, let's say, a borderline or marginal abilities, if they are older players, they can be sacrificed. There can be real retaliation that could occur with respect to their own careers. And that, that's something that you really are fearing for some of your colleagues who are bit up in age. You know, unfortunately, when you're 30 years old, that's kind of a threshold, that's a threshold uh, year 
And you're saying that what you've seen and what you anticipate is there may be some repercussions which aren't entirely due to their ability to play on the field. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, and one, one, one beautiful thing about this particular uh, negotiation and collective bargaining agreement, there has, there's been, as a result of it, there is a lawsuit. And, but some of the faces are the biggest names and recognized names in the, in the game. You know, unlike before, no, like before, where Reggie White was the face of free agency. You know, we, we have Tom Brady. We have Drew Brees. You know, we have Peyton Manning, you know, that have lent their name. We have Hall of Famer, uh, uh, retired Hall of Famer, Carl Eller. And, and so these are very recognized names. We have a, a, a second pick of the NFL draft this year's draft. The second player chosen, Von Miller has lent his name uh, to this um, lawsuit of which, uh, you know, is, is going to be decided in the courts and, and unless there is something that is agreed upon outside of the courts. And so it, it, it makes it very interesting, um, to say the least. And uh, for some people, it's going to be good. For some players, uh, the fact that uh, there is not an, uh, an off-season scheduled uh, OTAs, uh, that's good because perhaps maybe some people weren't ready for them at this time. Maybe there's maybe some players that are free agents need more time to get themselves ready and prepared that they might be able to come in and compete for a job. You know, the, the veteran, whereas before we thought he might be a sacrifice, not all of them will be, you know, a sacrificial lamb because the younger players coming in won't be able to make that adjustment as quickly in such a short period of time as some of the old players. So you can go back and forth on this issue, but it's, it's, it's interesting, very interesting. So I have a question. With respect to the drafted players, even the high-profile drafted players like Cam Newton, we mentioned that certainly there are, there's, there's no lack of gyms. There's no lack of free weights. There's no lack of people who will be willing to catch balls you know, back in college for him or, 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 or elsewhere. But it's ironic in some ways that he... He has a contract, you know, he, he has been drafted, but he really can't go anywhere. So the drafted players are really in place, although there's no season right now. And even more importantly, the non-drafted free agents normally would have a chance to interface with the teams to work out. And right now that there's, there's a lockout and a stalemate, those people are just waiting. And that, that's got to really be anxiety-producing for those kind of players. Could you touch upon a little bit about the rookies, the drafted players, and the non-drafted free agents? Well, that that probably of all the people that probably have been affected by this lockout has been the non-drafted free agent rookies, uh, because those players that are free agents that are veteran NFL players, they know the process, so they understand the process, and they probably still have some indication of where they would like to go the teams that are probably interested in them and what they need to do in this offseason to get themselves ready in the event that this lockout is ended and to be prepared. An undrafted free agent coming out of college now, that person has no clue. He wants to play in the National Football League. No team in the National Football League drafted him. And so, therefore, because they did not draft him, they did not have the chance to 
implement the free agency strategies that they normally do right after the draft and go after those non-draft or free agents out of college. So they, more than anybody else, their world is really just unraveled. They are waiting. Some of them probably will look at alternative leagues. That's probably the best thing for them to do. And if they do that, then what possibly can happen is that would probably open up a roster spot that maybe, you know, that, that, that veteran wasn't going to get. Now he can get it because that free agent may be playing in another league someplace and just to wear and tear on his body maybe when it's time to go to NFL training camp. Although he would want to, he could be injured. You know, maybe he's not prepared to come into an NFL training camp. But that's certainly a psychologically, mentally right now, that person that didn't get drafted, that's hoping to be picked up by a team right now, is just as uncomfortable as you could ever be. His life is in a disarray right now. Well, Ray, I'm looking at the time here. And what I'd like to do next week is I'd like, I'd like to discuss, and I want to hear your views about when and how this thing will be settled. I also want to hear about your views about whether there will be any repercussions for the NFL. Are they really going to lose any fans? So that's something I'd like to talk about next week. But for now, we're up against the break. And I wanted to thank certainly Ray Ellis for his participation. And we look forward to interviews coming up in segments two and three with Dr. Cynthia Beer of Sports Science and Helen Struckman, who's an exercise physiologist and manual therapist and guru here in the Philadelphia area. Thank you so much, Ray. Okay, Doc. Talk to you next week. Thanks, bud. You got it. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. Dr. Bruce Grossinger is a board-certified neurologist and managing partner of Grossinger Neuropain Specialist. Serving the Philadelphia and Wilmington, Delaware areas in the fields of sports medicine, pain management, interventional spinal surgeries, and occupational medicine. Dr. Bruce is the director of the National Sports Concussion Program and works as a senior medical advisor for the National High School Coaches Association. We're involved in the propagation of increased safety measures in all levels of sports participation to render the games safer in terms of brain and spinal injury. This involves education of athletes, parents, trainers, coaches, and administrators at the amateur and professional levels. Clinical consultations and treatment can be scheduled directly with Dr. Grossinger at 610-521-6063. Visit Dr. Bruce online at brucethesportsdoc.com. Again, for consultations and treatment, call 610-521-6063 or visit brucethesportsdoc.com. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Bruce the Sports Doc with Dr. Bruce Grossinger. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call in at 1 888 346 9144. That's 1 888 346 9144. Or send an email to bruce at brucethesportsdoc.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our next segment of Bruce's Sports Doc. We're very pleased to have in studio Dr. Cynthia Beer. She's the professor of biomedical engineering and director of research in orthopedic surgery from Wayne State University. She comes to us from Detroit, Michigan. Wayne State University has a long history of studying the brain and, in fact, 
The original model of head injury in 1939 came from Wayne State. It was called the Wayne State Tolerance Curve. Now, Dr. Beer works on a show called Sports Science. Now, it's one of my favorite shows. This is a show where you get to see football players, martial artists, and other athletes, and they are essentially being studied with respect to G-forces and physical forces. And uh, the last show I saw, there was a gentleman who was a martial arts guy who kicked a piece of wood, and um, they talked about the forces that he generated, and that if he were to generate just a slight bit more force, he would have broken his foot. So this is what you can expect from sports science. Dr. Beer engages us today in a conversation of her research with respect to trauma to the brain. The original research deals with the military. As you know, we have wars on many continents right now. And the type of injury that patients are getting, the soldiers are getting, are called blast neurotrauma. That's where there is an explosion and there are critical pressures that injure the brain. What doctor does is she, tr- she treats and examines these patients and uh, can actually measure the pressures within the brain and can study the tissue. She's also investigating in her research on a cellular level exactly what happens with the neurons or the brain cells during injury. That is, in looking at the cells themselves, we could find out, number one, what's going on? How are the cells in the brain being injured during blast trauma? And then how could we extrapolate that to concussion? So there's a lot of similarity between the forces of concussion and the forces that are subject to blast trauma. Personally, Dr. Beer has a very full life. She has four children, and she's married to an engineer named David, and has a very cute black Labrador. On her mantle is an Emmy that she won this year from her work in sports science with, with John Brankus. Dr. Beer has worked to study the effects of concussion on the brain and also has studied specifically how helmets and mouthpieces have helped diminish the forces to the brain. Unfortunately, her research points out that only about half of the force is diminished on a head-to-head hit with a helmet. So let's say there's an 80 G-force hit. That, the helmet only reduces 50%, so therefore there's 40 Gs being subject to the brain itself. And I'm going to describe what happens. There is a force that comes through. There's acceleration, which is the pop of helmet on helmet. And then in physics, there is an axiom. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So firstly, the brain is subject to an initial hit. Then a deceleration force where the head shoots back. This force has been likened to the same force of a sledgehammer. Dr. Beer, therefore, is very active in looking at football helmets, looking at the outside shells of the helmets and the inner material, the foam, and she's working to try to find the optimum type of helmet to protect the brain. Further, we discussed with Dr. Beer the most dangerous places to be on a football field, and clearly that has to do with special teams. And that's because you have, looking at it from a physics standpoint, you have 
one team running down the field and the other opposing. So you have force vectors, which are essentially adding up or summating. And therefore, a head-to-head hit with somebody who is uh, on the special teams, a player could equal up to 190 G-forces. And it's no surprise that some of the most disabling concussions occur in the context of special teams. I asked Dr. Beer about her interest in athletics and whether she was a great athlete growing up. She was really a scientist, and she, she's very humble and calls herself a geek. She's very interested in watching sports, but her playing sports is uh, clearly on a very amateur level. So with this, we want to uh, begin the engagement of the discussion of concussions, and you'll find Dr. Beer to be a very uh, enlightening scientist who will help share her research with you. And again, we're talking about the brain, the cellular level, and all the factors, including the forces, the blood flow, and the metabolism of the brain. So with this, we launch into the interview with Dr. Cynthia Beer from Wayne State University. We're talking about how the brain can be injured in blast force. We're talking about now something we call ischemia. When the brain is deprived of oxygen and nutrients in the stroke, that's another type of insult to the brain, and the tissue affects a cert- is affected a certain way. And as you said 15 years ago, we as neurologists said, we came in, you know, we had all the fancy instruments, and we said, yep, they had a stroke. So now we were talking yeah. about y- your research and experience with stroke patients. Well, it's, it's more of an example of how our treatment modalities evolve, right? So, and, and that's going to happen with concussion, I think, as we move forward. We're going to see where, you know, right now we treat them in a certain way. But hopefully with research in five or ten years, we can more quickly diagnose them and then know how to treat them. And like you mentioned, you know, there may be, you know, person A may be different than person B, and we need to be cognizant of that and treat them accordingly, um, which is why what I think is important is our basic research that we, we're doing is important, but the field data is also important. I mean, we need both to feed back and forth. We need to have, um, we don't, we can't have a disconnect between what's happening on the field and what they're seeing on the field and what we're doing in the lab. We need to be talking. We need to be knowing what are the, what are we seeing, you know, when these people get injured and then how does that relate to what we're seeing in the lab? Um, so they, we really need that information to flow both ways. Now, I think it's very important to realize that there are only a few university centers in the country that have your type of monitoring equipment. And anybody who watches the sports science show realizes this isn't something you're going to get at Pep Boys. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> you, guys are, you guys are truly the experts. And it's truly an honor for myself and my brother, Douglas Grossinger, who's with the National High School Coaches Association, to work with you. Because ultimately, the, the cure can only come when we understand the mechanism of injury. Exactly. And um, if you could, now, we were talking a bit off, off the air about some of the ways you measure the forces between the brain and how you could measure the. Uh, the pressures, we talked about the TMJ, which is the temporal mandibular joint. And also, could you give us a sense for how you measure the pressures in the brain when, when it comes to sports, particularly some of your athletes, maybe your, we talked about MMA, maybe your soccer players with, head, with heading and some of your research. So getting into the sports-specific areas, could you tell us about how you monitor it, 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 some of your early data? 
Yeah. Well, we've done a lot of research in, in sports neurotrauma as well. One of the key areas that we've worked at, um, looked at is soccer heading and that repetitive subconcussive events that occur. Um, when I first started studying soccer, it was like, you know, um, the traditionalists were, oh, we don't want people to wear headgear and things of that nature. And we're not necessarily that saying that that needs to happen. Um, I'm still not convinced one way or the other, although we have seen in some of our models where a subconcussive event, one event is subconcussive. But when you have 10 of those in a row, we're starting to see some significant changes um, in our model, including um, hydrocephalus, where we're starting to see what you had mentioned, the breakdown where you start to get some of that cerebral spinal fluid going in places where it shouldn't be going and not contained. Um, So we need to look at that a little further and figure out where where do we need to monitor? Where do, what do we need to look at um, so that we can kind of make sure that we're not kind of having the silent epidemic where those things are happening and we're not noticing them? I think the worst experience is when you're sitting there, and this literally has happened to me. My kids play soccer. Sitting on the sideline of a soccer field, mom comes over and says, Johnny has a headache, happens every time he plays soccer. He thinks it's related to when he hit, heads the ball, but we don't know. And they kind of laughed it off. And it's like, okay, now I'm not saying this kid had a concussion, but I, as a mother, I would be looking into that. And that's really important because, you know, when you have a child say, I get a headache every time I play soccer, well, he's either dehydrated and he need, that's another whole issue, or he's having, you know, he's, something's happening for him to have that headache. So that needs to be explored. It can't just be, oh, well, you know, that's, that's part of the game. And, and granted, I understand there's an inherent risk with playing sports. There's an inherent risk with living. Let's be honest. I mean, we all have a risk. We get in our cars every day. We have a risk. You know, that's, that's part of it. But we have to start, you know, determining what risk we're willing to accept and what's not acceptable. And so I think it's important for us to kind of, you know, figure out what those risks are and try to mitigate them. Now, we're not going to be able to eliminate all risk. It's just not going to happen. But we need to find ways to mitigate them. Helmets, mouth guards, things of that nature all need to be looked at. Um, We did some studies looking at mouth guards and whether or not they could reduce concussions. There's a lot of anecdotal information out there, and there's going to be continued anecdotal information until we really nail it down and do a really nice longitudinal study to determine the effect of wearing one versus not wearing one. What we did see in some of our preliminary what we did see in some of our preliminary research is that the bimaxillary mouth guard, the one that covers both your upper teeth and your lower teeth, that's a custom fit, reduced the strain seen at the base of the skull more than any other mouth guard or no mouth guard alone. Um, And that's because the thought is that it creates a space in the TMJ, that temporal mandibular joint, the one, your jaw joint, basically. So it creates this space so that when you do get an impact, whether it's due to chin strap loading or a direct impact, you have a cushion there. You have the ability so that, you know, you don't load that, the base of the skull with that bone. So that stuff needs to be further explored. We, we have a tremendous opportunity to use some of these new materials that are coming out. There's a lot of new materials that are being discovered um, for helmets, for mouth guards that we need to look at because, you know, they're, they're becoming thinner, which makes them more usable. That's one of the biggest complaints. It's not comfortable. I don't like wearing a mouth guard because it's not comfortable. I don't like how it fits, things of that nature. Um, so I think we need to, to look at some of these new materials, explore our options. Helmets have come a long way since the day of, of the leatherheads, right? Yes, um, of course. So we need to look at what's out there and what can we use. Helmets do a pretty good job decreasing linear acceleration. But the one thing that we hear about a lot is angular acceleration. How fast does your head, you know, 
flip back or when you hit, how fast does it you know, turn one way or the other? So this is kind of like the circular motion of your head. Ask a boxer how to knock out another boxer. You got to make their head spin, and that's going to be the knockout punch. If you can get their head to turn, they're gonna, you're going to have a knockout punch. Um, so that's what we need to look at, angular acceleration. How can we take a helmet and design it so that it decreases that angular acceleration? That's tricky. It's being done, and we're working on it, but we have a little ways to go. Well, we actually probably have a long ways to go. But we need to look at you know, using our models, not just our biomechanical surrogates, our, like, our crash test dummy type surrogates, but our finite element models, our computer models, can be so insightful for design of helmets and things of that nature. And that's some of the efforts that we're going to start at Wayne State and hopefully continue on is try to come up with ways that we can you know, make our protective gear more protective. Right. So when we look at helmets, we, we see the outer shell. And we also have the inner material. Right. And it's interesting that uh, when I first started practicing neurology, uh, we, we talked about if the outer shell was too hard, it wouldn't really absorb the blow. You know, if it was made out of uh, some, uh, some big forged mm-hmm. metal, um, it really would do nothing. Right. Because the optimum football helmet and also hockey helmet, in, in a really catastrophic case, if it absorbs the blow and it collapses... Um, th- then that should be should be useful. So we have to find a kind of a happy medium to have materials that can collapse and absorb the blow, but yet exactly. still be durable. We can't. We don't want to have a helmet that's like the exploding golf ball because then it will not be durable. And another point is, as the helmets, if we have more mass, which may pr- provide more protection, we really find that we're, we're creating battering ramps. That we're, we're creating with these large, fast athletes. We're really you know, using physical. Uh, equations, uh, force equals mass times acceleration. The, the bigger helmets with the force, they seem, particularly with the helmet-to-helmet contact that, yeah. that's so prevalent and discussed. So it's really a, a fine line. And what I always get asked in, in, as, a, as a doctor is, what's going on with the helmets? What are the best helmets? Yeah. And as you would say, um, it seems like it's a moving target. Um, without getting into brands, <laughs> disparaging or yeah. promoting brands, could, could you give us maybe just a little discussion on, on where you see the improvement of helmets going in the future? Yeah, I think you're right in terms of increasing the mass is not the answer. And it's not just from the battering ram, but it's also from, you know, as you know, neck injuries. Um, you start to have more mass on, on the neck, and you're going to ultimately create some neck injuries as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't think necessarily increasing the mass is going to help. Um, I think we need to start looking, like I said, at the new materials. We need to start looking at ways to design these helmets so that um, they can dissipate some of this angular acceleration, somehow decouple that impact from the head. You know, so you need to have a system so that, you know, whether it's a sliding mechanism or something, so that when the helmet moves or the helmet absorbs that impact, that motion that it goes through to absorb the impact is not translated to the head. So, you know, there's a lot of new technologies out there that we need to look at. Um, the, the outer hard shell of the helmet, you're right, is, is real important. Um, and then that padding material inside is also important. Um, so, you know, it's that combination. It's, it's dissipating that force and also kind of distributing that force. That's what's so important is you have to distribute it over a larger area, but then you also have to dissipate it. It's sort of like the, the crash barriers on the, on the highway. You know, when you crash into them and they have like several barrels set up so that it dissipates it over a longer duration. And that's exactly what the padding material does inside the helmet is it dissipates it over, like kind of slows it down or creates a, a longer deceleration curve so that it's not, you know, it's not a big, as big of an effect on the brain. Well, I'm, 
as I said, I'm really glad that, that you're working on this material. And we also, there's also, at times, there's, there's multiple steps. That is, if we find what we feel to be an optimum helmet, we then have to, we get into the branding and we have to, you know, at times the, the best material may not be the one that's promoted by a particular professional league. And there, there is some resistance to change, and, to, it, and it's also resistance on the part of the athletes as well. For instance, as a hockey player, there was resistance to even wearing helmets. Oh, right. And, and I, I played in that, and that's, I've had some significant facial restructuring surgically. And now, in, in, in the college sport, I was happy to say, well, I played at Lehigh. We, it was mandated that we had helmets and cages. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, number one, we have to develop the ideal helmet. We have to extrapolate it to our high school players and we have to distribute it particularly to areas that may that may not be able to afford them we have to make sure that varsity and jv athletes get the same type of helmet and frankly that's a big disparity even here in our suburban areas we see a lot of bad concussions in in, uh, people that just happen to be jv and not varsity because they get lesser equipment i wanted to work back a bit just in a discussion for the audience because you touched upon some great areas of, of neuroscientific interest to me one is you talked about hydrocephalus, and I want to define that for the audience. That means when the brain actually loses its mass, and we see that in our patients who have chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And this has been studied, certainly in, in, in multiple centers, including at BU. And what happens there is there's infiltration of tau bodies, these, these brown staining uh, tissues, and, and we have loss of tissue. And what happens? The brain abhors a vacuum. And so instead of having cortical brain tissue in gray matter, what we see, we basically have fluid, uh, cerebral spinal fluid. So that, that is something, subconcussive mechanism, certainly in football, boxing, and MMA. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting with the different models. The football players tend to, uh, to have more severe psychiatric problems. And they don't usually live to see the movement disorders, the dementia pugilistica that you see in your Muhammad Ali types, your boxers. For some reason, they live longer and they develop more of an extrapyramidal syndrome. Another thing you mentioned I think is really instructive for the parents, coaches, and traders out there is with concussion. Back when I trained in the, uh, the 80s, we thought that you had to lose consciousness to have a concussion. Right. And we looked at loss of consciousness as a predictor for severity of concussion. And now, and, and pr- we particularly collaborated at the University of Pittsburgh, they're looking at symptoms that predict a more long-lasting or more difficult concussion. And what we find is it's not loss of consciousness, but it's headaches. And you talked about Billy on the soccer field with the, with the head. Every time he plays, he gets a headache. We find that somebody who has headaches is, is more predictive of a a longer sequela, a longer, a worse prognosis, and also there's a people who report fogginess. If we use the word fogginess, if they just can't think right, we feel that that's a very strong early predictor of more intractable concussions. Well, I mean, when you think about it, when you lose consciousness, your body shuts down, right? And that's your body's safety mechanism. That's the point where it kind of shuts down and it lets itself repair. And you don't get that with the, the long-term headaches and the, the, those, that fogginess. It's like you're, you're constantly chipping away at that as opposed to just letting your body shut down and repair itself. And so I think that's true. We need to start looking at you know, the chronic headaches, the, the fogginess, the not ability to, you know, inability to concentrate and all those things, which is a very difficult thing to diagnose 
in children, for one, in, in our high school athletes, you know, it's like inability to concentrate. Well, that describes, you know, 75% of high school teenagers right now, right? Just because of everything that comes at them with media and all that. So I think we need to, we need to come up with ways to diagnose, um, have, a, have a greater sensitivity of diagnosing um, concussions. And, you're, and the definition, like you said, of what is a concussion has changed. Um, just even the past year, the guidelines for what is a concussion and how do you kind of check that box that, yeah, this person has had a concussion is different than it was last year. And so I think that's, it's, it's important to see that we are evolving, but we have a ways to go in terms of that diagnosis. Well, uh, it, it's certainly been a great discussion. There's certainly a lot of fodder for future discussions. We're very interested in Dr. Burr's research as we head forward, and I know that myself, on behalf of the National Sports Program, National Sports Concussion Program, and also certainly for my brother, Mr. Douglas Grossinger, who's the senior administrator for the National High School Coaches Association, we're really gratified that Dr. Burr came to visit us in the Philadelphia area. She has some other meetings to attend. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. So here we are. This is Bruce the Sports Doc signing off. Until next week, good sports and healthy sports, please. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. Dr. Bruce Grossinger is a board-certified neurologist and managing partner of Grossinger Neuropain Specialist. Serving the Philadelphia and Wilmington, Delaware areas in the fields of sports medicine, pain management, interventional spinal surgeries, and occupational medicine, Dr. Bruce is the director of the National Sports Concussion Program and works as a senior medical advisor for the National High School Coaches Association. We're involved in the propagation of increased safety measures in all levels of sports participation to render the games safer in terms of brain and spinal injury. Injuries. This involves education of athletes, parents, trainers, coaches, and administrators at the amateur and professional levels. Clinical consultations and treatment can be scheduled directly with Dr. Grossinger at 610-521-6063. Visit Dr. Bruce online at brucethesportsdoc.com. Again, for consultations and treatment, call 610-521-6063 or visit brucethesportsdoc.com. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Bruce the Sports Doc with Dr. Bruce Grossinger. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call in at 1 888 346 9144. That's 1 888 346 9144. Or send an email to bruce at brucethesportsdoc.com. Now, back to the show. This is Dr. Bruce Grossinger, Bruce the Sports Doc of VoiceAmerica.com. We are very interested in having a very broad-based treatment for our sports injuries. And to this end, we have a very special guest. Ms. Helen Struckman is here, and she is a licensed physical therapist in the Philadelphia area. We have collaborated over quite a long time, longer than Helen and I would like to admit, because it would indicate her age, actually, <laughs> that we uh, have Helen treating our patients who have musculoskeletal injuries, uh, both from a traumatic standpoint as well as from a sporting standpoint. And Helen has a place called the Serenity uh, Spa, which is in Media, Pennsylvania. 
And we wanted to talk a bit about the approach that Helen has. So, number one, Helen, I wanted to welcome you to our show. Thank you. And maybe perhaps you could give the listeners a sense of what, what you do when somebody comes in with an acute injury mm-hmm. and they might have a bruising or swelling, neck, back problem, extremity problem. Give us a sense as to your thought processes, how you diagnose the problem, and how you use manual therapy and other alternative treatments to help the uh, the patients. Certainly. Well, probably the, the most important thing is to find out if the individual has seen another professional like yourself or perhaps a, perhaps a chiropractor, um, or whether it is... Um, something that is such an acute injury that we're really the front line of uh, who has seen the client. And probably the first thing that I would want to do is make sure that they do have uh, proper screening from a professional like yourself to make sure that there's not any significant injuries. Uh, Typically, we can determine this by um, simple palpation. Uh, if it is so excruciating that the person's not able to tolerate any kind of uh, real pressure whatsoever, then we're really going to stay away from that injury. Certainly, we don't want to deal with any uh, breaks, um, any uh, acute significant injuries. But certainly, um, your simple uh, sprain, strain, uh, any kind of overexertion responds very, very well to massage therapy. And certainly, in conjunction with physical therapy in conjunction with uh, perhaps uh, uh, having injections, uh, more of the traditional pain management. I think that adding massage therapy is a very, very integral part of long-term rehabilitation for the client. Right. So it seems that's a very important point that you made. It's really a multidisciplinary team approach. Absolutely. For, For instance, somebody comes in, they have an injury, obviously, they might get some x-rays. They might be evaluated by a doctor such as myself. And once it's defined as a musculoskeletal injury or soft tissue injury, whether it be any type of athlete, whether it be a, uh, a strain of a, a joint or, or the spine itself, whether it be a basketball player or a football player, it's important that we have a team approach. But massage therapy definitely has its role because, number one, you're actually spending a lot of time with the patient. You're actually affecting them through manual techniques. Um, could you perhaps share, Helen, about what, what type of manual techniques you use? What are the branches of, uh, of massage therapy that, mm-hmm. that you employ? And, and how did you learn how to do this? And, and tell us about a little, you know, if somebody were to come into your office, walk them step by step as to what they can expect in your office. Certainly. Well, the first thing certainly is to get a thorough client intake form where you're able to find out uh, exactly what their pain is, what their pain level is, uh, where they're experiencing this discomfort, how long they've had it, uh, whether there is uh, tingling or numbness. And certainly that would be an indication of more um, uh, spinal problems such as a herniation or perhaps uh, nerve involvement. And that's where you would certainly come in. The vast majority of the clients that I see right now probably are your weekend warriors where um, maybe they have exerted themselves a little bit too harshly over the weekend. Uh, They wake up and they're stiff and they're sore and uh, they just really, really hurt. Or even uh, we see a lot of golfers, um, also uh, a lot of people that are just uh, overexerting themselves with any kind of sports injury. Um, 
and typically they'll come into our office and we'll give a very, very thorough intake if they're coming in for just your standard uh, therapeutic or perhaps deep tissue massage. Now, if we're working with a client uh, that has been referred to us from a physician um, or perhaps in a lawsuit situation, we would do a very, very thorough, thorough assessment uh, to see exactly what's going on with the patient. Uh, typically, our, our probably most common um, massage for uh, sports uh, injuries would be our sports massage. Uh, typically, that's a combination of neuromuscular, perhaps uh, Frimmer, um, certainly Paul St. John, John Barnes, myofascial release, uh, some trigger port. So as opposed to a full body relaxation massage that might be done deeply, these are very, very, very specific techniques that are utilized with those types of patients. And then certainly at a later time, they might come in for uh, the full body work, or they might even do that in tandem. Right. So it seems that it's important for the listeners to seek out somebody who's very well trained in massage therapy uh, across the nation. There are probably different schools of massage, but I can tell you from firsthand that Helen Struckman is one who is able to use the different scientific approaches. So there, are, there is a role for a maintenance massage or a general relaxation massage, but what we're talking about here on Bruce's Sports Doc are people that have you know, serious injuries, that is, that is deep musculoskeletal injuries. They may have derangements of the spine, such as the sacroiliac joint and the lumbar spine. Or they may have an impingement syndrome of the shoulder. This is very important for the baseball pitchers out there because the, the anatomy of the shoulder is such that the clavicle interfaces with the rotator cuff and the subacromial region, the deltoids, infraspinatus, supraspinatus. So I know that I've seen Helen with patients such as baseball pitchers. She's able to do a stretch and a manual technique, which is very specific to different joints, and also the fact that she mentioned different eponyms, essentially for different schools of thought, that the massage therapy is a very integral part of the medical treatment. So at this point, we are, uh, we're out of time for this segment. Uh, we wanted to thank Helen Struckman for her participation in Bruce the Sports Doc, and as always, uh, enjoy sports, but try to be safe. Thank you. We want to thank Helen Struckman for spending time on our show. She certainly shared a lot of useful information with us. And the most important bit of information is that if you are a massage therapist or exercise physiologist, it's very important for the patient to be cleared by a medical doctor of some sort. That is, when patients have certain symptoms, such as weakness of muscles, numbness, or change in reflexes, those people should be evaluated to make sure that there isn't a structural problem in the neck or the back. Some of the most common structural problems we see in clinical practice in the neurology office are injuries to the discs, discs that can slip out or be herniated, and nerves which are pinched. More ominous are injuries to the spinal cord itself. The spinal cord is part of the central nervous system. So when there are spinal cord injuries, the reversibility is much less than when there are discs and nerve injuries. So what Helen rightly espouses is when somebody is injured, they should go to a doctor, they should be cleared, and if the doctor says 
There is no nerve injury. There's no disc injury, and the spinal cord is okay, and they need physical therapy and manual treatment. Then physical therapists, chiropractors, and massage therapists are an excellent choice. As part of our show, we like to try to dispel myths with respect to brain injuries. One of the main myths has to deal with whether or not an athlete has to fully pass out or have a loss of consciousness in order to have a concussion. So for you listeners out there, I'm going to give you a moment to think. Do you need a full loss of consciousness to have a concussion? Or could you suffer a concussion without fully passing out? The answer is, you do not have to have a full loss of consciousness in order to pass out. In fact, patients, athletes on the field of play may not fully pass out, but they may experience a whole host of symptoms, including headaches, slowing down, trouble concentrating, dizziness, problems with their vision, memory, and balance. Now, you might ask, Dr. Bruce, how come you don't have to pass out? Well, it has to do with the hit itself. When I watch a hit on video, I like to look and see, number one, whether the head was in a neutral position facing straight ahead or whether the head was turned or rotated. One of the most devastating injuries I witnessed was Sidney Crosby's concussion. And that is, his head was rotated. There was angular acceleration. And that kind of force is much greater on the brain than a direct linear that is a hit directly in the line. So when I analyze a hit, I look to see if there is angular acceleration. When boxers are knocked out, that has to do with angular acceleration. And what that does is it means that either both parts of the brain, both cerebral hemispheres, or the brainstem get knocked out. However, the majority of concussions involve a hit that only injures one part of the brain, either the right or left part of the brain. The part of the brain that you should know is injured most often is either the frontal lobe or the temporal lobes. And as you go along, you're going to become familiar with this type of jargon. And it's very important because the temporal lobe has certain features. The memory circuit, which is the hippocampal and parahippocampal gyri, are held in the temporal lobes. So if we look at the middle part of the brain, the bones, the petrous bones are right there. When there's an impact, pop! The most likely area would be the temporal bones and also the front part of the brain, which is called the frontal lobes, is encased in fluid, cerebral spinal fluid. So what happens is there's an acceleration, pop, a forward force, and then there's a recoil. Just like if you had a bowl of jello and you hit it, pop forward, and then pop backwards. So that is what's going on in the brain. And how can the brain express itself when it's injured? The person, that is a human being who is walking around with the brain, may experience problems with cognition. That is, trouble with memory, trouble with just being tired, trouble with slowing, headaches are the most common symptoms following a concussion. 71% of people have headaches. And to a lesser extent, dizziness, fogginess, and balance problems. And as a neurologist, I examine the patient, I look at them, and I see what part of the brain isn't working. Now, one area where you could be falsely deluded into thinking everything's fine is 
You take the athlete to the emergency room. They do a CAT scan or MRI, and everything looks normal. The CAT scan or MRI is normal. Should you feel that everything's okay? You're out of the woods? The answer to that question is no. And why is that? It's because CAT scans and MRIs are very sensitive for certain degrees of pathology, such as hemorrhage, when blood vessels rupture and leak blood into the brain. That's called cerebral hemorrhage. That's obviously an emergency and may involve a neurosurgeon actually evacuating a clot from the brain. But concussions, for the most part, occur at a cellular level. They occur when cells are injured, and when you look at a CAT scan or MRI, the CAT scan or MRI is normal. So please, don't be falsely reassured that everything's okay if the CAT scan and MRI is normal following a concussion. school to the pros we we cover everything let your voice be heard voice america sports you are listening to bruce the sports doc with dr bruce grossinger if you have a question or comment about today's program please call in at 1-888-346-9144 that's 1-888-346-9144 or send an email to bruce at brucethesportsdoc.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the last segment of Bruce the Sports Doc. We want to give you a quick preview about upcoming events. Next week, Johns Hopkins University, and then we have the New York Giants Super Bowl reunion, 1986 reunion in June of 2011. We've got Ray Rice. Baltimore Ravens, who's going to talk to us about what it's like to be a running back in the NFL. We have hockey great Keith Primo, and we have a whole show on spinal cord injuries with Dr. Andrew Fries and Adam Taliaferro of Penn State. I'm happy to introduce Dr. Joseph Fernandez from Rutgers University. He played professional football in Puerto Rico for 15 years. He's the newest member of Grossinger Dora Paid Specialist. We're going to let him introduce himself, and we're going to let him close out the show today. Here he is. I note that he's coming out of the operating room. He's carrying a leg. He's carrying some metallic objects, and I notice he's covered with a serosanguinous discharge. Joel, could you wash up a bit before you get near our broadcasting equipment? Okay, he's washing up now. This is Dr. Joseph Fernandez. Good afternoon, and Bruce, thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here with you. Thank you to inviting me, and thank you to having me and your staff. I'm really excited about it, and I had a chance to clean my hands, which is pretty good. Uh, really, very, very fast about me, so the listeners start to annoy me a little bit. And don't get worried, you don't understand me. The truth is, I don't speak English. Uh, I'm going to try to do my best to get myself understand. And if you don't understand me, it's still high definition. Don't worry, it's not you, it's me. The people is going to be very happy, it's the Spanish population. They really understand me, what I'm saying. Uh, about me and where I'm from, it's a very, very funny question because I don't know how to answer that question. So the listener is going to tell me where I'm from. Both of my parents are from Dominican Republic, but I got a baseball jeans on me. I always play baseball, I'm very good at it. I was born in New York, 
1971, Manhattan. Reason why maybe I like the Yankees so much. And when I was one and a half years old, my mother, which doesn't speak English like me, decided to move to Puerto Rico with the rest of my family. So I grew up in Puerto Rico. So I got a very good mixture. I consider myself Puerto Rican, Dominican, American, which is great. I do my professional, I do my, resi- uh, I study medicine in my, in the country of my parents, Dominican Republic, Ibero-American University, very recognized university in the country. And I did my residency in pediatrics in San Juan City Hospital in San Juan, Puerto Rico, back in my island. Uh, two years ago, I decided to come to the States because my dreams since I started studying medicine was to do sports medicine. I always been an athlete, and it was the part of the medicine that I always like. So I say, all these kids listen to me. If they had a dream, they can do it themselves. They like sports, they can do it. So I want everybody to, to take that from me. Uh, so I did my fellowship in sports medicine, Jersey Shore University Center, in association with Rutgers University. Division One uh, athletes, which is a great, great advantage and great learning experience for me. Like uh, Bruce mentioned before, I played uh, semi-pro professional football in Puerto Rico for 15 years. I they call me the West Worker of Puerto Rico. Not too high in in, in high, but very big in heart and very good hands. And of course, it's never bad to be fast when you play sports. Uh, so and we're very excited uh, to, to join Bruce's staff. We're going to start doing a lot of sports medicine, injuries, and prevention, including concussion. And prevention is a really, really key word. That's why this program is so, so important. So we don't have too much time. But remember, exercise is medicine. If you go out and work out, you're going to be very, very healthy, and I don't have too much time, but I'm looking, looking forward to get back in the show, talk a little more, and start to know all listeners, and everybody's going to listen to us. We got a, a good, good things coming up in the future, very good uh, sports injury to talk about, and I think we can relate to, to our listeners. It's going to be really, really excited. Uh, on behalf of myself and Bruce Crossinger. I appreciate to every listener to listen to us today and we'll see you next week. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining the discussion this week on Bruce the Sports Talk. Tune in next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with Dr. Bruce Grossinger on the Voice America Sports Channel. We'll see you then. 